0: As we come now before the very Word of God, if you'd like to read with me, I'll be in the first letter of John in chapter 2. I think the page number may be in in your worship guide. 1 John chapter 2. We have just a few verses to take up this morning. But before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, we know that you are above all, that every angel, every power, every authority, everything is subject to you. Your word is supreme and your way is good. Help us now to attend to these things with all eagerness, knowing that this is the word of life, would you send your Holy Spirit upon us to help us to listen and to believe? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is First John in chapter 2. We'll just take these first three verses, so we'll begin in verse 1. First John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. This is the word of God. Now, in taking up this text, we are here in the middle of a broader section where John has put a strong emphasis upon our Christian obedience. That is uh, something he talks about in many different ways throughout the writing of this whole, whole letter. So he says that we are to be people who, who walk in the light, who walk as Jesus walked, who keep his commandments, who keep his word, who practice righteousness. There is a clear call to obey God. And as we say that, there are some people, some Christians, who who might hear any mention of the Bible's call to obedience and be quick to say, oh, but wait, we know that our works don't save us. We are people who are saved by grace, through faith in Jesus, not saved by our works. And that's true. Good works are good. They don't save us. Only Jesus can save us. That's true. It's also true that our good works in God are part of the good news of the gospel. That, That God has created us in Jesus Christ for good works. Which means when Jesus saves us from sin, he forever saves us from the punishment of sin, which is good news. And... By his Spirit, Jesus returns us to paths of righteousness. That's good news, too. So any emphasis that the Scripture puts upon obedience is not just to make us moralists, little legalists, or hypocrites, or people who are the teacher's pet who are just trying to do the right thing. It's to make us real lovers of God through Jesus. And that because we love God, that would overflow in a happy obedience to to him in all of his ways. We want obedience to God. Sometimes. We might be able to see that it's good, and we, we may know that we should want obedience to God, but there are many times where we just don't want it. And so what happens then when we enter into disobedience? So as Christians, people who have set their trust on Jesus, what happens when any of us does sin? In those cases, because that happens all the time, John reminds us of two important truths about Jesus. He says Jesus is our advocate, and Jesus is our propitiation. That's what we've just read about, our advocate and our propitiation. Last week, we took up Jesus as our propitiation, which is a big word, meaning that God's anger for sin is averted. Jesus has appeased God's wrath by God's love through God's gift of his son, Jesus, That's last week. We won't focus too much on that today. Today we're taking up that Jesus is our advocate. And we should think of him as our advocate. Jesus is not just our Lord, not just our King, not just our Savior. He is our advocate. And if we really know that, really take to heart that he's our advocate, this will be an immense comfort to the believer. So to help us really know this advocate place, we're going to address the six journalistic questions about advocacy. Who, what, where, when, why, and how. We'll just take up the whole big bundle so that we really know what advocate all that entails. So let's get after it. First question, who? Who is the advocate? Now this question will be brief in because it's the most obvious. We've already said the advocate is Jesus. The advocate for the Christian is not m- me. It's not your pastor or priest. Uh, it's not some friend. It's not some saint who lives now or forever. It's not Mary. It's Jesus. We know this. But John calls Jesus more than just Jesus. He gives a little more information about him in this. Verse 1, my little children, says John, I'm writing these things to you so that you won't sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ the righteous. It's a reminder that even while we may sin, Jesus does not. Even while we may be unrighteous, Jesus is not. And everything that Jesus does as an advocate is part of his righteousness. All of this is perfectly in line with the whole nature and goodness and holiness of God. Our advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, question two, what? What is it? This is one of the most important questions we'll take up. You know, we've said Jesus is an advocate, but what is an advocate really? Quick seminary bit here. If this is not your cup of tea, well, I'll come back and pick you up in just a moment. But I remember back in seminary when I had to memorize a whole bunch of Greek words in the Bible. Sounds fun, doesn't it? Uh, it was. Uh, memorization is not uh, my strong suit. Uh, it gets harder the older I get, Uh, but this word at least in the Greek, this word that's here in English as advocate, was easy to remember because the Greek word sounds like an English word. Uh, The Greek word here is paraclete, which sounds like pair of cleats. Uh, which I have soccer on the brain because I'm a a very ill-equipped soccer coach uh, this summer. And so pair pair of cleats. And cleats always come in pairs, right? They're no good if if you've only got uh, one. And a paraclete uh, is one who comes beside. That's what the word means. A paraclete is one who comes beside. So a pair of cleats, they come beside your Feet. Feets. And, and it's, uh, they're not just like any other shoe. It's not just any regular pair of shoots, shoes. You put on cleats for a particular purpose, to give you traction on a soft field. So, so Jesus also has a particular purpose as the come-beside, as the paraclete, as the advocate. What is his purpose in doing that? We know when, when Jesus is at the Last Supper with the disciples, he tells them that he's going to be going away soon. But then he says that in his absence, he's not going to leave them as orphans. He, he's going to send them another paraclete, he says, which is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will be the helper that will continue to point them to Jesus. The one who will come beside to be their peace so that they don't need to be afraid. The one who will teach them all things. The one who will remind them of everything that Jesus said. The one who will seal their salvation with him. And so when Jesus pours out uh, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter two, the most amazing part about that scene isn't just that you know some people get that cool bit of fire on their heads that everyone can see. The, it's not just that people are speaking in tongues uh, that everyone can understand, even though they speak other languages from other places. The, the, the amazing part about Pentecost is that the Holy Spirit, who is sent by Jesus, has now powerfully come beside us. That the advocate is with us. Now the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, has come beside us to point us to Jesus, but Christ himself has come beside us for a different purpose, which is this. Jesus is our legal advocate. Jesus is our legal advocate. In other words, he is our our representative, the speaker on our behalf in the courtroom of God. So we have examples like this. Uh, there was a, a uh, a time where Laura and I, we know many others have done this as well, were CASA workers. Anyone familiar with CASA? Uh, CASA is an acronym that stands for Court Appointed uh, Special Advocate. And CASA advocates are volunteers that judges appoint and assign to particular kids who are in foster care. And, and so, uh, uh, for a, a child in foster care, a CASA advocate then spends time with those kids, spends time with their families and their caretakers, teachers, coaches, whoever may be in their life. And so when, when the court date comes to determine what happens next for that child, even if the child is not physically present in the courtroom, the CASA advocate comes beside the child to speak up for the best interests of that child. That's what an advocate does. So in this context, it's very similar. An advocate is a person with legal authority who is in your corner, who is on your team, who is at your side. And for us, that person is Jesus Christ the righteous, That's the reason why, in the scriptures, the Bible assures us that we can never be be condemned, even for the sin that we continue to do. Romans chapter 8, a big lovely passage, uh, verse 34 is the only part I'll read. Paul says, who can condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what an advocate means. Now, this brings us to our third question, where? Where is this hap- Where is Jesus acting as the advocate? All that John tells us in his writing is just that Jesus is with the Father, but we just read here in Romans, it's repeated a dozen times this way in Scripture, uh, that, that that place is more specific, that he's not just with the Father, he's at the right hand of the Father. And, and we know what that means, right? We have a similar idea. If, if you've got someone who's a right-hand man, Joe over here, he's my right-hand man. That's, a, that's someone that, that I see as reliable. Someone that I work very closely with. Someone, someone that in my mind holds the highest place of honor and trust for me. And Jesus is in that place. So in the course of time, we know that the eternal Christ was conceived in the womb of the Virgin, born in the manger of Bethlehem, lived, taught, walked the dust of the earth, died on a cross, was buried in the tomb, resurrected, and then soon ascended through the clouds as many saw him go. And at that point, then, he returns to the most prominent and powerful place in the entire cosmos. He is at the right hand of God. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 1, verse, uh, let me find it, 20, Christ, when the Father raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also to the, the one to come, he put all things under his feet. And he gave him as head over all things to the church. There is nothing higher than Jesus. And we affirm this regularly. You know, every time we say the Apostles' Creed, that line is in there. Are you running through it in your head? Jesus ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Now that last line there hasn't happened yet. The quick and the dead... Uh, which means the living and the dead. For a long time, I thought that meant the, you know, when I was a like kid, the fast ones and the slow ones. But uh, he's going to come to judge the quick and the dead, and that has not yet happened. He has still yet to return to judge. So, which means we're in the space before. If you've ever wondered where Jesus is right now, there's an answer in the Bible to that. Jesus is right now bodily in the heavens at the Father's right hand. And he's not just sitting there, twiddling his thumbs, waiting for a return. That'd be a long wait. He's not just, you know, tap-tap-tapping on his iPad uh, to just sort of bide the time. He does many things there from the right hand of the Father, but one of the most prominent things is that Christ acts as our advocate from that highest place. That's where he is, but now we get to the fourth question. If you're tracking time, we're about halfway through. When? When does this occur? We've answered part of this already. It's happening right now. Right now in the heavens. John doesn't just say this is a future thing. We will have an advocate later in case we ever need it. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say in past tense, we had an advocate with the Father, as if it were something finished. He says right now we have an advocate with the Father. But it's not just right now. It's forever forever. All the nows. Jesus died once and only once. That happened in history, and it is a past event. Jesus died once. But Jesus lives to be an advocate always. That's what the writer of Hebrews is getting after in... I'll have to find it. I think it's chapter 7. Chapter 7, yes. Verse 25... He, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This advocacy is always happening now that Jesus is at the Father's right hand, which means, Christian, listen, when you find yourself battling sin and losing. When you find yourself feeling the weight of the world heavy upon your shoulders. When you find that the evil that you do not want, you keep on doing. To the point that you just groan with Paul, oh, wretched man that I am. When you feel that, We often look to Jesus in what he has done. To look backward on the the sacrificial love of Jesus on the cross, and that's good. We should do that. But there's an even better comfort than that. You can look to Jesus in what he is doing right now and what he continues to do. You can tell yourself at this very moment Jesus Christ the righteous is at the right hand of the Father advocating for me. Has right now come beside me. Tell yourself that. Now, we have two more questions. Why and how And for me, at least, these have been the most helpful. I hope they'll be helpful to you, too. Why? Let's do why. That is, why do we need Jesus to be an advocate for us? On one hand, the answer to that seems fairly easy, you know? We know that all of this is kind of wrapped up in the context of our own sin before God. You know, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you won't sin, but if you sin, we have an advocate. He says. We also know that Jesus has become a propitiation That is, by the blood of his sacrifice, he he took all the condemnation, all the punishment, all the wrath for our sin, which means there's no hell hanging over the Christian's head. There's no pit underneath our feet. Jesus, Jesus took it all. He drained all that dry. That's what he meant on the cross when he said, it is finished. But we might wonder, if it's really finished then why do I still need Jesus to be an advocate with the Father? Is it done or not? The reason why we still need this is not because, not because the Father might find some hidden sin in us that wasn't previously covered by Jesus. You know, Jesus isn't a janitor up there trying to sweep up all the leftover sin as an advocate. That's not it. Nor is it because the Father might forget what Jesus has done to save. So the advocate, Jesus, isn't like a historian who's kind of trying to open the books and going, no, no, remember, Father, remember, remember, oh, yeah. Nor is it because the Father is still kind of miffed at us holding a grudge still in the back of some place against our sin. And so Jesus is going to come in like an advocate referee and he's going to blow the whistle and call foul anytime something gets even close to the edges. That's, that's not what's happening here. The reason Jesus stands as our advocate is not because of anything that comes from God the Father. His reason is for standing at an, as an advocate is because there is someone else who enters into the court of God. That someone else is the one whom the Bible in Revelation calls the accuser of the brothers, but who we often call Satan or the adversary or the adversary. The reason why Jesus advocates for us is because of the stand of Satan. Now, how? How does that advocacy go? That is, what does it look like? This will carry us to the end. We know that anytime we even attempt to imagine God and his heavens, that our imaginations on these things are going to come up short, so so I want to be careful not to encourage us to overstep here. But there is a scene that is very helpful and similar to this in Zechariah chapter 3, where where the prophet Zechariah has this majestic, mysterious uh, vision of Joshua the high priest standing before the Lord in in the court of heavens. We don't have time to read that passage, but but you could do it on your own, meditate it, Zechariah chapter 3 if you want. But that gives us a solid ground to understand what this might look like more broadly. I want us now, do this with me, picture these positions and events in the heavenly courtroom. Okay? So in the very center of all of the heavens, the very hub of it all, is the Lord, Yahweh, God the Father, the great judge of all the earth. And he is seated on his throne. From his throne come flashes of lightning and peals of thunder, And there's a circle of a rainbow that glows like an emerald. And before his throne, on one side, is the table of the prosecution. And at that table stands the great red dragon, that ancient serpent, the accuser of the brothers. And he is ready, poised, to strike with his fiery case of condemnation against the accused. On the opposite side of the throne is the table of defense. Where stands you? You are there in the courtroom of God. And if you do not know Jesus as your Savior, listen to me, if you do not know Jesus... You stand at that table of defense utterly alone. And you will have to make your own defense for yourself before Almighty God. But if you do trust Jesus as Lord, if you do know Jesus as your Savior, that means then Jesus, who is at the right hand of the throne of the Father, He comes beside you as your advocate. He is on your team. There things are. And then, with a cloud of smoke and a shaking of the thresholds and a clap of thunder, court of the Lord is in session. And Satan doesn't waste a moment in taking up the prosecution with, with fire in his eyes. He says, look, 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 look at all the evidence of this one's iniquity. Look at all this exhibition of his many evils. And as he speaks, he brings in bailiff after bailiff after bailiff, bringing in box after box after box of sin, stacking them up now in a mountain of testimony against you, and you see it and recognize it. He has not said a word of anything that is untrue, it's all true. And then the dragon says, The verdict is undeniable. This filthy fool is guilty and condemned and must be thrown into the pit. And in that moment, there's a A murmur, but you can't even speak a word, and as you stand there, voiceless, then Jesus stands and comes beside to make your calm defense. He is not rushed. He is not anxious. He is not threatened by the dragon. And Jesus opens his mouth to speak your defense. What he says is not to claim that you are innocent of your crimes, that would be untrue. He also does not deny that even one of the holy things you said or did or thought weren't the reality. Jesus simply says, I already served the sentence for that one, I already paid his punishment. Jesus doesn't need a single bailiff to bring in any box of evidence. He just holds out the wounds of his own holy hand inside as he speaks your defense. What this all comes down to is basically this. Satan, the accuser, says, This one is bad. But that argument's not going to stand. Because Christ the Advocate doesn't say, Oh, this one is good. No, He says, This one is mine. We are not just beside the Advocate, we belong to the Advocate. We've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, the righteous. Breathe that in. Pray with me. Lord, help us to continue to be stunned and humbled by this, that Christ would not be against us, but would be for us. Thank you for your immense love and grace toward us. Help us to trust you, to honor you, and when we are afraid, to always turn to you. Thank you for being our advocate